Guys, thanks for letting me be here with you today. I'm super excited. And yeah, I usually have a guitar slung around my neck when I'm here. And I'm, I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks, and then I'll see you at the barbecue during the week of hope. So that's good. Uh, I, was, I was grateful for the music today, uh, just because I don't often get a chance, man. I don't know. I, I don't often get a chance to, like, be there. <laughs> you know, there's always, I'm always doing this or this or hitting things, you know, it's like always making noise on a stage, so being able to do that was good. And um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm grateful for the two-hour message you gave me today, so yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, The last two songs are really kind of bookends. They kind of need each other, and I'll tell you why. Um, because the, the refrain, the little bridge breakdown of King of My Heart says, you're never going to let, never going to let me down, right? And we sing that, but better let's be honest. How many times do we feel kind of, just kind of let down? Just, just kind of, I mean, you know, go ahead, you can raise your hand. Do you ever feel let down? I mean, right? So, so what does that mean? You know, sometimes we sing that. I, I have to sing that sometimes as a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because, it, like, I want it to be true in, in my life, but, but sometimes I feel let, let down. You know, it's like I got a sick kid. You know, it's hard to be a dad of a sick kid and not feel let down. Everyone says, well, it's not like I'm railing against God, shaking my fist at him. It, it, but, you know, sometimes feel let down. So here's the bookend. The, the never going to let me down part, I don't, I don't really think is, is about a feeling. or it, It's about identity. And so the next song that we sing, talk, uh, we talked about in, in my father's house, there's a place for me, right? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. That, that is how he's never going to let us down, right? Because uh, the Bible talks about this hope <laughs> that, that, that he holds on to us. And there's this great, great passage in the book of Revelation, one of my favorite passages. It talks about the people of God being victors, standing before God, and, and God gives them um, a stone. This is crazy. He gives them a stone with a name carved on it, like a nickname for them. You have a nickname. God has a nickname for you. I, I don't know what it is. It says it's only going to be known between you and him. That's an amazing thing. So... To think that you have a nickname, to think that God is holding on to you, to think that God has a place for you, that God has a name for you, that he's adopted you, called you his own, he's never going to let you down, right? So I, I needed that today. And that's, that's a special, special thing. So we are going to be talking about hope uh, today, and I, I kind of want to lead us into hope. I want to talk about what happens before we get to the hope, because honestly, I don't know that hope is just something that we can reach up and grab out of the air. I don't know that hope is just kind of floating around and I can choose to wake up and put my feet on the ground and just grab hope sometimes. I, I, I think, I tend to think when I read the stories in the Bible about hope and, and leading up to hope that there's kind of a, there's a pathway to it. There's, there's, a, there's a practice of something to, to get us to hope. So we're going to look at one of my favorite passages today. I have a bunch of favorite passages, by the way. Uh, read any good books lately? Uh, so uh, Psalm 1. Now, I, I grew up, uh, I, I started going to church when I was about nine years old. My neighbor 
uh, drove down the driveway. She took a big risk to invite my brother and I to Sunday school because my dad was a major pothead, um, was probably um, walking around our property without clothes at any given time. You know, if like this is this is where, where I grew up. We lived in a van literally for a while, a Volkswagen van on our property in Grass Valley, California. My dad was probably walking around the property this day, uh, listening to Van Morrison at the volume of 20 and smoking weed without clothes on. So now you get the picture, right? And this, this beautiful lady drives down our driveway and invites my brother and I to Sunday school. And we have this great experience. When I was nine years old, I remember uh, praying with this woman, Charlotte, who just went home to be with Jesus last year. I got to do her uh, memorial. Uh, it's super special for me. But, but she, like, she introduced me to Jesus and my brother. And then years later, uh, her daughter and husband introduced my parents to Jesus. They have a whole legacy with our family. Crazy, crazy, beautiful legacy. And um, so we had this great life. But then it, an interesting thing happened when my parents started following Jesus, like the pendulum swung for them. And, uh, and they started making all these changes that looking back, if you talk to my parents right now, they would say they were maybe necessary for the time they thought they were, but they were unnecessary changes. They were, they were changes that they made that didn't necessarily equate to what it means to be a Jesus follower. They kind of made up their own rules. Uh, for, for instance, like blow up the TV, right? You know, no more TV, just like blow up the TV. Uh, burn all the record albums, like that, that kind of stuff, right? Now, maybe it was a cleansing ritual for them. Maybe they had to go through that, although those were some of my albums, and I wasn't very happy as a kid, you know, and I've spent a lifetime replacing all those albums as well as my dad, by the way, you know, because he, he realized it wasn't absolutely necessary. They took us to this, to this church where we had to drive to this church about an hour to get there. It was in Forest Hill. The name of the church was the Sovereign Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Forest Hill, California. Say that ten times fast, right? So we went to this, uh, to this church. Now, I could tell you story after story after story of how I felt burdened and kind of uh, stagnated and frustrated and angered in that, in that church growing up, honestly. I could tell story after story. But one of the greatest things that happened in that church, somehow, God saved me through all of that. And one of the greatest things is that I memorized a ton of Scripture. Um, and a lot of times we did it through songs. So one of my favorite songs that we sang was... Out of Psalm 1. It was the first three verses of Psalm 1. Now, we sang it in the King James Version, which, like, I, I don't know what you feel about the King James. You can like it. You can love it. That's, that's okay. Uh, for me, I, I, I feel like I'm watching Monty Python sometimes when I, when I read it. You know, it has a, the, the these and the thous. And it's, um, but that's how I learned the song. So, but I'm going to tell you what Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says uh, without the these and thous. It, it says this. It says, blessed is the, it says man, but it's really, it's person, it's human. Blessed is the human who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. And they will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields forth fruit in its season and whatever they do will prosper that's beautiful right so let's think about this for a minute so 
Blessed is the person that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly first. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, uh, some translations, if you read it, it might say happy. Happy is the person. Or, uh, or maybe you hear it as content. It's really... Uh, the word bless is like an interjection. I don't know what you know about grammar, if you remember your grammar days in, in high school, but it's one of those sayings that is in a sentence that usually has an exclamation point after it. Like, holy cow! Or dang, man! Whoa! It's, it's that kind of a word. Blessed, happy, yikes! Like, I can't believe it! Like, it's, it's like saying to somebody, you must be incredibly happy if... You don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. So uh, who are the ungodly? Think of it this way. It, it's not like the bad people. <laughs> That's not what it means. Um, uh, but there's, there's a counsel. There's a way of thinking. There's a way of talking, a way of walking, a, a perspective that is not necessarily aligned with God's perspective, Right? And we don't want to listen to that all the time because it's easy. It's easy for me to, like, if I stick around that a long time, it starts rubbing off on you. You just get it on your skin, the negativity. So it's like you can't be, wow, holy cow. You can't be that if you're walking in the wrong kind of counsel. It doesn't mean don't, don't hang out with people. Of course, we're supposed to hang out with people. We don't hide from the world. This is, that's not the gospel. We spend time with people. But be careful of the counsel. Of the ungodly, so it says, uh, walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or or stand in the way of sinners. Now look what's happening here. First, we're, we're walking in the counsel of the ungodly, and then we're standing in the in the way of sinners. So what does it mean by sinners? Again, it's not it's not the the bad people. One of the best definitions I have ever heard of sin uh, is by a guy, a renowned theologian named N.T. Wright. Uh, Beautiful, wonderful theologian. He says, sin at, at its core is, is brokenness. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's being broken. You and I, when we say we're sinners, see, I grew up in this, this church that made me feel like, like this, like God was always doing this, like he was always ready and willing to spank me and give me the holy backhand. You know what I'm saying? But that's, The Bible gives a much different picture of a God who loves us so deeply that he doesn't want us to stay in a state of brokenness. So when bad things happen, when we make bad choices, do bad things, whatever, it can always, always, always be traced back to brokenness. And and we have this multiple layers of brokenness thing. We're broken with God. We're broken with one another. We're broken with the world around us and, and even the environment. Everything's broken. And we're broken with ourselves. Back to that identity thing that we talked about. Like we get off, we get off track. And so the Bible paints this picture of always wanting to put us back together. God is always in the business of wanting to fix us. Fix the brokenness. Put us back together. So blessed. Holy cow. You must be happy if you're not walking in this bad counsel or standing in the way of brokenness. Or sitting. That's the next thing. Sitting in the seat of mockers. Right? So see this progression. Standing, 
walking, standing, sitting, becoming more content with, with, the, with the brokenness, right? And another way of saying uh, mockers uh, are, are like the haughty, the, the proud, uh, the people who are always too good for that or don't want to have the brokenness fixed. Or So if you look at it this way, the Bible is saying like, if you really want to have hope, right, then you've got to rethink the, the thing. There's a whole reorientation that needs to happen. Your lives need to not be about walking and standing and sitting over here, but reorienting yourself around the person of Jesus headed towards God. Are you with me? All right, so this is beautiful. And what does that give us? Well, it gives us a life that's planted by a river of water that yields forth fruit in its season. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And its leaf doesn't wither, right? There's something about fruitfulness and green trees that's just absolutely amazing and gorgeous. Now, there's a story in the Bible where Jesus points at a fig tree that isn't bearing fruit, and he curses it. Have you ever heard this story? Isn't that weird? Why, why do you think he does that? Why do you think he curses it? Because it's not producing fruit. But what is it doing? It's looking gorgeous. I have a tree in my backyard. It's an orange tree. It's getting better because we've been nourishing it and taking care of it and doing things with the ground and pruning it. And when I say we, I mean my wife, because I haven't done a darn thing with it. So my wife's been taking care of this thing. But when we moved into that house, this orange tree had exactly one orange on it. One. And the next season, it had one orange on it. And the next season, it, it, I don't even think it had an orange. Next one, it had one orange. But you know what? My wife was like, she was like, we got to get rid of that tree. It's just, it's not going to heal. And I said, don't get rid of it. It just, it looks so great. It, and it's creating shade. And it's, it's beautiful, right? Jesus is mad at the tree, not because it's ugly and dead. Because it's taking all of its energy to look pretty. See what's happening there? But Psalm 1 is saying you could be like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields forth fruit in its season and its leaf will not wither. And whatever that kind of person does will prosper. I think that's awesome. I think that's beautiful. Right? Dang! Holy cow! Don't we want that? That's what the Bible's inviting us into. So... Uh, Ironically, this church that I went to with my parents where I learned this, this beautiful psalm, um, like I said, was very uh, oppressive to me. And one of the first things that I did when I got out of that church, as I obeyed my parents. I wasn't a rebellious teenager. I you know, stuck with it, although they barred me from taking communion because they said I didn't believe in the right ways, which, boy, I could go on all day about that. But one of the first things I did, you might think this is funny, is I got a tattoo that says freedom. The first tattoo I got, was it freedom from Jesus? No, absolutely not. It was freedom in and because of Jesus. Was it freedom from the church? No, I, I still loved the church. I still wanted to be part of it. But, but that oppression, that, that weirdness, that yuckiness, that, that felt just, ugh. 
like I, I wanted that freedom. So I got this, this tattoo that says freedom. It's on my arm with a bunch of other gobbledygook right now, so I won't show it to you unless you want to see it later. But I really believe that when Jesus said that he came to give us abundant life, he says this in the book of John, that, that he meant it. Like abundant life. That's way different than just existing. Like, I don't, I don't want to exist. Who wants to just exist? We don't want to do that. We want to know what it looks like to live, to have abundant life. And I think this is what is happening in Psalm 1. And I think this is, I'm hinting at this, is this is what's leading us to hope. You know, how do we get to this hope? I think we have some huge clues here. So I started asking myself, what does it look like to, to live this life of hope, to actually get out of bed, put my feet on the ground? What do I have to start doing? How do I have to orient myself to be like this person in Psalm 1 that the Bible talks about? So one of the things that I started doing many, many years ago is I go on morning walks. And if you ever see me on my morning walk, you might think I'm a loon. You might think I'm a little bit crazy because one of my heroes of the faith, even though he had some weird things, uh, is St. Francis of Assisi. Now, if you know anything about St. Francis, maybe, have you seen those statues in somebody's garden? Maybe you have one and there's a, it's a, a saint and he's holding a bird or there's a bird on his shoulder or there's animals around him. That's St. Francis. St. Francis uh, believed that his call was to uh, preach the gospel to everyone and and gospel means good news or or good headlines right that god is offering us something and by the way do you have to beat people over the head with good headlines no no they want to know it right right so saint francis believed that he could live his life in a way that people would be attracted to these good headlines that he had to offer and one of the ways he did this uh is he he believed that he was even called to preach the gospel or give the good headlines to the animals, right? So I don't know exactly how it worked for him, but I've tried to kind of put myself in, in, in that frame of mind. And so sometimes when I walk the trails, often in the morning, if I hear the birds singing, I assume that I don't know their language, but, but they're singing to God. I just assume that. Call me crazy. I, I, and so I talk to them. Hey, birds, I hear you. You're singing the songs of Jesus. I got one to share with you. I'll start singing. I'll be talking to them. I mean, you're going to really think I'm a crazy person. Like if you run into me on the trail because I'm talking to the animals. Hello, Mr. Squirrel, Mr. Puppy Dog. You know, by the way, I passed this lady uh, last week walking a dog in town. I said, oh, that dog is so cute. And she went and kept walking. She did, not the dog. The the lady did that. She, She spoke to me. It was it was beautiful. So I love that. But I, see, I don't think I don't think that's crazy. I think that there's I think that there's something happening, um, like even with creation, that God is inviting us into. You know the story. Um, maybe you've heard the story where Jesus uh, heals a blind man. He he spits in mud and puts it in his eyes and says, "What do you see?" And when I grew up hearing this story, I always thought that it, like Jesus didn't heal him all the way because he says, "Ah." His first response is, well, I see people walking around like trees. And so Jesus puts more mud in his eyes and says, now how's it? And he says, oh, I can see. Right? Now, I don't think Jesus half healed him. Wouldn't this be crazy? Wouldn't it be crazy if Jesus overhealed him 
the first time. Would it be crazy if he gave him the kind of vision to see what was happening behind the veil, this otherworldly kind of thing where he saw men and women walking around and they looked like trees because they were somehow connected to one another in this weird spiritual context and connected to God, which makes a lot of sense when he says that he's the vine or the branches, like kind of weird to think about, right? But I like to think that Jesus may have overhealed him the first time and given him a glimpse into this connection that we have with one another and God and creation and ourselves. That makes sense with the fix the brokenness piece for me. So where did it go wrong? Like, why don't we just wake up every single day and and we're happy and blessed like a tree planted by rivers of water? Why aren't we always yielding forth our fruit in season? Why don't we always have hope? Why can't we just grab it out of the air? I don't, I don't know exactly how we got there. I can tell you one of the things that happened for me growing up is I was taught to work super hard as like the, high, as the apex of everything in life. Hello, my name is John, and I am a workaholic. And I don't want to blame it on my dad. I don't want to blame it on my – because my dad's a hard worker, and he always had food on the table, and I love that, and I learned some great things from him. I don't want to blame it on my grandparents. But honestly, I grew up in a culture where I was taught this puritanical American work ethic where, like, you just work, work, work until you drop. And that somehow doing that, like that, that work of your hands – and Bruce Springsteen would say the same thing in about 90% of his songs – that that work would somehow make you right with God. This is – this is a puritanical work ethic. But, but you know what? I think sometimes for me, at least, that kind of crazy talk gets me off track from being the person that's planted by a river. Uh, planted, right? By a river. <laughs> like the, If I'm working towards hope, I think there's a lot of rest involved. Because this is the picture that I, I get in Psalm 1 this different kind of rest. We're not walking and standing and sitting, but we are indeed resting. Like we're, we're finding this new kind of rest. There's this guy, this Roman statesman, his name was Pliny the Elder. There's also a beer named after him, but that's besides the point. <laughs> Pliny the Elder worked so hard that he would hire people to feed him while he was working. So he would not have to stop working. That's crazy talk. Right? I I don't want to be there. So maybe that's part of it. We think we always have to do. We always have to produce. We always have to make. We always have to create. Do you guys have a problem with resting? I like not everybody. Maybe maybe you don't. But and if you don't, that's fantastic. But I think the vast majority of people that I meet have a problem with resting. But I think God is inviting us into something different because the opposite of play isn't work. The opposite of play is misery. And, and I don't think God wants us to be miserable. That's not, that's not abundant life. That's not hope. That's, that, that's not hope. So I think we need a theology of playfulness. 
We need a theology of laughter. We need a theology of rest. And I really think these are the things that we pick up even in those first three verses of Psalm 1 and throughout the whole story, stem to stern, front to back, Genesis to Revelation in, in this book. And that's the people of God have always been getting led into this new kind of rest and this playfulness and this laughter. And, and we'll unpack that uh, just, just a little bit uh, here today. Um, there's reasons I think that some of us don't laugh and, and that we're not playful in church. I don't know if you grew up in church, but like I said, I had a little bit of time in church. And uh, religious upbringing can oftentimes kind of squash the playfulness and the laughter and the rest and the, and, and, and the hope and the joy. And the, the French call it the joie de vie, the joy of life, right? That actually sometimes can get sucked out of us in church. Uh, how does that happen? It's like it's the place where, where we should find our joy, where we find our rest and find our hope and find our life and find the abundant life, right? But sometimes, I don't know how you grew up, but religious upbringing can suck that out of us sometimes. It's, like, it's almost like there's, there's at least 2% of the people that reserve the right in church to be absolutely miserable. Just they just look like they're sucking on lemons all the time. It's like, how, how, how do we get there? Why do we get there? I don't know. I think that there's, there's a bunch of things that, uh, that might uh, steer us down that road. But it is definitely not the thing that God is inviting us into. Uh, so there's this perceived idea. I think that the, that the pursuit of God is always something that is very, very serious. My wife got a, uh, got a book when she was a kid. It was passed down from her mom. Her mom had it passed down from her mom. I think it's like three or four generations deep. It's called White Gloves and Party Manners. And it had a whole chapter in this that talked about how to behave in church. And I mean, it's head down and hands folded and quiet and respectful. I, I don't want to be part of that. Like... It doesn't mean that I don't ever want to be quiet, of course, respectful all the time. Yeah, but I don't think God is inviting us into this kind of pious, tail tucked between our legs, head bowed for such a worm as I kind of, kind of life. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see it anywhere. The Dark Ages, right? The, 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 the Middle Ages, they were, they were a, a really dark time in history, right? Really dark time in history. So what came out of that time in the church? If you ever go to a museum and you look at the art from the Middle Ages, oh my gosh, everybody looks so depressed or angry, right? And, and this is church art. It's like the church was producing a ton of this. And, and it stands to reason because of the time that it came out of, the time period it came out of. But, but see, God is always in the business of healing, and he's always wanting to pull us out of that, and he's always wanting to invite us into something different. So uh, about the time of the European Renaissance, then we see the end of the dark times, we see that the art starts changing. You know the court jester? Right? You've seen the court jester, heard of the court jester. You know, they usually come into the court of a king, right? And they, they cheer him up, they juggle, or they tell jokes, or they, they do something funny, the, the jokester, the jester. You know whose idea that was? It was the church's idea. The church is the first group that started hiring 
comedians. They started hiring jesters in the, the time of the Renaissance because they realized that something desperately needed to happen. Could you imagine what it would be like if you had somebody that you employed on your staff at your church just to be the comedian? I mean, it's, I mean well, Matt <laughs> did that. That's crazy. I love that. So now is humor, is the joking, is the playfulness ever bad? Well, yeah, sure, sometimes. I mean, sarcasm. I, I tend to think that I have the uh, spiritual gift of sarcasm, by the way, which is sarcastic even in me saying that. But, uh, but sarcasm comes from a, a, a root word that, that means literally the tearing of the flesh. So, so sarcasm can be a bad thing, right? You can, you can hurt people's feelings. Like humor sometimes can hurt. But I think in the church... We spend way too much time thinking about what is not allowed, right? And way less time thinking about what is acceptable. And I think this road of hope, I think this position, this, this new kind of rest, this thing that God is entering uh, or asking us to enter into uh, has to start with the question, God, what do you want from me? How do I get on board with that? And what freedom do I have to worship you? Could you imagine if church, if we looked at church like a playground, if we looked at worship like a playground, if we looked at our family time like a playground, like what would happen? How would that change for us? But oftentimes we're just concerned with what we can't do, right? I need, I need to toe the party line. What, what, what can I, I We never ask what can I do, but I, I want to stay away from the things that, that I can't do. I remember having a conversation with a woman about 20 years ago when I was leading music, and she met with me after church. She was super-duper upset because I invited everybody to lift their hands. And she said, why are you asking people to raise their hands? I don't have to raise my hands to be a follower of Jesus. I don't have to do that. You make me feel guilty when you invite me into that. And I said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're right. You don't have to. But but what would it be like to say, I get to? What would it be like to live our lives where we say, I get to do this, that God is inviting me into something completely different on this road to hope? So does the Bible have laughter? Does it have humor? Does it have, you know, this kind of life? Or am I just making this stuff up, right? I could go on for days about this. Here's a few. Um, Jesus used funny words. Actually, he used used sarcasm, right? He did it a lot. Like the the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, like people were saying some things and throwing shade, and Jesus didn't like what was going on with that. And he called them whitewashed tombs. That's funny. It, it, it's supposed to be, right? It's sarcasm. Like the people who heard that would have gone, whoa, Jesus. Like that's, that's funny. I mean, people would be upset if you recall that. But, but right? It's like you're, you're like a tomb that's washed brilliantly white. But inside, it's all dead, rotting corpse. Like this is the picture that Jesus is painting. Yeah, sometimes Jesus was sarcastic, and, and it was supposed to be funny. God was sarcastic uh, with Job, right? the story of Job. There's a whole scene where God is talking to Job, and, and he says, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, that's right, Job. I, I totally forgot. I totally forgot. You were there when the world was created. That's right. I, I, 
How, how, how did I forget that? When I drew a line in, in, in the sand and I said, this is where it stops and this is where the ocean comes up. Duh, Job. Of course you were there. Yeah, the, the Bible has plenty of room for that kind of a thing. Uh, Jesus uh, and children. Man, Jesus was always playful with the children. They're, they're, they're coming. They're running to him. They're sitting on his lap. I love seeing these, these pictures of Jesus that, that get painted with, with kids. And in Luke 18, what is everybody trying to do when Jesus is trying to play with the children? What are they telling him? Stop. Don't do that. Why? Because it's not the way of God. We need to know God. We need to walk in the way of God, right? Oh, my goodness. And Jesus says, no. These, this has to happen. Don't you understand this? If you don't come to me like a child, and how do, child, how do children come to us? Playful, right? If you don't come to me like a child, then you're not even going to understand this kingdom of heaven, this thing that I'm inviting you into. And there's another scene that, that I, I totally love uh, where <laughs> Jesus is uh, it's in Matthew 21 and, and the kids are running around the temple and they're, they're shouting praises to Jesus. And everybody's trying to shut up the kids. And Jesus stands up and in a very humorous way, he quotes a passage of scripture out of Psalm 8, but he doesn't quote the whole thing. He only quotes part of it. Now, so imagine the scene. He quotes part of the verse because he knows they know the verse, and he knows they're going to figure out what? The second part of the verse. They're going to put two and two together, and they're going to find a deeper meaning. So this is what happens. He says, haven't you heard that out of the mouths of babes and infants he has ordained praise? You know what the second part says? To silence the foe and the avenger. That's what it says in Psalm 8. So Jesus is being funny. He's quoting half of a verse. So they, in their mind, they say it out loud and they go, oh, wait, he's talking about me. What? Why I ought to. Right? I mean, this is, Jesus is always eating and drinking. He's always at, at, at parties. Now, People try to tone this down all the time in the church. They, they really try to tone it. I mean, he was at party, but really, I mean, they were playing Uno. Nothing really got out of hand. I mean, they were drinking, but it was Welch's. And like, eh, let's, let's kind of keep this on the down low. But no, in John chapter 2, it says that Jesus made the best wine at the party. What made it the best wine? When, he brought it, when they brought it to the guy who was running the party... He tastes the wine because this is the tradition. And he says, why did you save the best wine for last? Why? Because you usually give the best, like vintage, high-quality, yummy wine at the front end. And then people drink it, and then pretty soon they forget what they're drinking. And then they have the two-buck chuck or three-buck now. Right? <laughs> like, the, so he made the best wine. Now, of course... Drunkenness is a different thing. The Bible says, you know, don't be drunk, right? But, but Jesus made the best wine. Make no bout it out it. This is what happened. I messed up the words on purpose just in case. Okay, all right. Then one of my favorite things, I, I, I imagine this. I had my friend Len paint this picture for me. He, my friend Len always has this way of inviting me into Scripture and allowing the story to speak for itself. 
you read the creation story, you see what's happening in that first chapter. And you know, the first few verses of Genesis, when the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and God is like carving out the mountains and the sea. My friend said, what do you think's happening here? And I said, man, I, I feel like God is making mud pies. And he said, exactly. You read back through those verses, and I dare you not to think of it as God making mud pies. He is very, very intimately involved and playful in creation. And, and then what does he do at the end of it? At the end of it, he rests. Why? Because he's exhausted? No. Because he's recreating. Recreating. Think about that, right? I often like to stumble upon words and go, wait a minute, there's something more happening in this word. He's recreating. He's recreating. He's enjoying. He's delighting in. Remember someone? Delighting in. It's the same kind of thing that's happening. He's delighting in it. And God is in the business of recreating, of recreating. He He's wanting to invite you and I into this. And we have to have room for all of this if we ever want to be able to get, to get to the hope. Like we have to be able to wrap our minds around this new kind of rest, this new kind of playfulness, this, this new kind of laughter. Uh, Hebrew culture has a thing they call Shabbat Shalom. They, they say this to one another. It means peaceful Sabbath. But it doesn't mean peaceful as in take a nap, although it could. It means peaceful as you find this new way to interact and play with God. You find this new freedom to interact and play with God because all the work has ceased. And for a day, you can breathe, and now you can connect to God in a whole new, playful, enlightening, enduring kind of more life than you ever imagined kind of a life. This is, this is abundant life. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? I think it, it means worship is, is playful. And when I say worship, I, I don't mean music, by the way. I, I think that we've gotten a bad habit of referring to music in our churches as worship because this is worship. When you were walking around and you were getting coffee and shaking hands and hugging and high-fiving one another, that's worship. Like anything that is concerning itself with the business of being taking part in that, putting things back together, like putting the brokenness back together, healing our relationship with God, with one another, with the world, with ourselves, that's all worship. Worship is responding to absolutely everything God is with everything that we are. So what if, what if that was playful? What if we stopped taking ourselves so dang serious? What if we were able to, to look at the concept of sin as brokenness rather than the things that I do wrong, smacking myself upside the head all the time and feeling guilty and tucking my tail between my legs? What, what, what if I said, no, God, I really want to know and I really desperately need your help to put these things back together? Like we, I want to fix the brokenness because I want to be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Like what would that look like? For us, I think it would put I think it would put a smile on our face more often than not. 
honestly. And, and I, I think that hope has a smile. Like, I don't, I don't think we should think of hope without a smile. I, th- I think that it's always attached to it. I, I, think it's, I think it's what God is inviting us into. Now, sometimes people try to make a difference between happiness and joy, and I totally understand that. Like, because it doesn't always feel happy. You don't always feel like jumping in the air and clicking your heels. And joy is something much deeper than that. And I get that. I, I resonate with that at some level. But honestly, if I'm, if I'm truthful, the story of happiness and joy are intertwined in Scripture. It's really hard to even separate them. Like, God actually legitimately, literally wants to invite us into a life full of more smiles. He, he really does. He wants us to be able to find that. Uh, Plato, who is not a, a theologian necessarily, but said some wise things, said, you discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Oh, man. I love that. So what are the byproducts of this Psalm 1 kind of life then, this playfulness, this laughter, this, this, this new kind of rest? Well, it's, it's freedom, like my tattoo. <laughs> it's freedom. It's, it's abundant life. It's possibilities, it's dreams, it's energy, it's, it's uh, I mean that like energy to move throughout your day, it's, it, it's relationships, it's, it's, it's new conversation, it's, it's being more teachable, and ultimately it's, it's this hope thing. And I think all of those things are inherent in hope. So I think God would ask us this, this question then, he would say, Instead of, you can't outwork me, what if our cry was, you can't outplay me? What if that's what it was like? See, that's good headlines. If we can live our lives as the people of God with this new kind of rest and this entering into this kind of abundant life and this you can't outplay me kind of a mentality, then things like a week of hope are going to be a huge duh. Every week is going to be a week of hope, right? Every single week, because people are going to see what's happening in this community and say, ah, holy cow, that's what I want. Dang, that person must be happy. That's what I want. All right. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms, for what they teach us. Uh, thank you for these stories in the New Testament of you and and the kids. Thank you for the story in Revelation and giving us a name written on a stone and our identity. And thank you for the creation story and your your playfulness and your making mud pies. Thank you for your your, uh, sarcasm to teach us things, Lord, Um, like you did with Job, like you did with with the teachers. Thank you for your patience with us. Uh, And thank you, God, that you are really inviting us into a life uh, that is full of expectation and energy and an abundant life and and ultimately hope, Lord. And it's all because of you, and we love you. Amen. Okay, great. Thank you, you guys. Thank you.